Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It is good to be with you. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts or go to johnwarrenmedia.com for more information. You can send along uh, an email through our contact uh, form there, or you can email me directly at john at johnwarrenmedia.com. Well, we have uh, been covering lots of beautiful ground as we've talked uh, through most of our recent episodes about the character of God, the essence of God, the nature of God. And today I want to focus on the justice of God. Next week we'll talk about God's patience, uh, which is really an interesting topic. This this notion of the justice of God or God as judged judge is also really a, a beautiful deep topic. I think you'll enjoy this information today. You know, when I think about God's justice, I think of a couple of things. I think of God's judgment, God's eschatological judgment. And and then I think about the scene that scripture paints in Romans 3 of this courtroom where God adjudicates us guilty of 14 counts of sin. And we'll talk about that a little bit later today. But God's governance, his uh, a judicial power, his, his justice, is challenging for us Americans to, to understand. Uh, you know, we're accustomed to three distinct branches of government with an executive branch that oversees the execution of the law, execution of government, a legislative branch that that created and continues to create the law and a judicial branch that administers justice according to the law. Governments in antiquity didn't operate that way, and God doesn't operate that way. God accomplishes all three of those functions by his very nature, his essence. He is Jehovah. He he is king. He gave the law. He's served the legislative function in a sense, and he is judge administering justice. He, he doesn't require checks and balances. He has to be true to his essence. There's no wavering whatsoever in him. He doesn't make bad judicial decisions. He applies the law, which is already perfect. He applies it perfectly. So, We've talked about his immutability and other attributes, his nature, and and we know that he administers justice perfectly. He always has and always will. Well, most of us are warmed by, uh, pleased by, comforted by many of God's attributes, his, his mercy, grace, love, omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, and so on. But we don't often think about his role as judge, and yet that that is his moral rightness. But we 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 don't like thinking about this. But it's often discussed in Scripture. This role of, of this justice, righteousness, they they come from similar words. 
but this this attribute of God is discussed much more often than most of his other attributes in 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 scripture. It permeates scripture. It's not just an Old Testament thing like we sometimes think. It, it's it's also in the New Testament. In fact, it's it's intensified in the New Testament. God's justice, God's role as judge. God's justice requires the rewarding of good with good and evil with punishment. I'll say that again. God's justice requires the rewarding of good with good and evil with punishment. This is called retributive justice. We don't like to think of God that way, do we? God's righteousness and justice are similar in that they're based on his moral rightness. And when we get to the Greek words for those two uh, that are translated with those two words into English throughout most of the New Testament, you'll see that they're very similar, not identical, identical, but similar words. They have similar roots and meanings. Righteousness often means just being right or just or, or as it ought to be. And that word justice or justify or justification often means to render righteous. So the righteousness of God, the theme of the book of Romans, is, is really what we're saying is it's, a, it's about the justice of God or justification by faith. You've probably heard those two things, that, that Romans is about the righteousness of God and other people say it's about justification by faith. Those are really very similar ways of describing the same thing. So the Bible is, is full of references to the justice of God. But this group of people that we encounter as Christians, the people you and I hang out with, we, we, we say things like, we're, we're very comfortable talking about is with them, but not ought to be not moral issues, not ethical judgments. We, we say that this is a good church. This is a good biblical church. This, this group of people in our church, is, is, this group is warm. These people are warm and kind. There's a, there's a, a grocery chain in, in most of the southeastern, many southeastern states called Publix. If you're, if you're located throughout the world, you're not going to have any idea what I'm talking about, but they've got a slogan that says, where shopping is a pleasure. But we're, we're way less comfortable talking about ought or should. Our society tends to think something like, what right do you have to tell me what ought to be or what I should do? We, we reject these absolute standards. We really reject them because they're from God, we know theologically. And we just don't like the tension of specific requirements. Evangelicals, even in theology, tend to embrace good feelings, warm, fuzzy feelings over facts, don't we? Well, we've, we've developed ethical theories, and I don't want to get in the weeds with ethics right now, but, but when you talk about God's role, his justice, I think it's important to, to try to overview this at least. But we, we group these ethical theories into two groups, des descriptive and prescriptive ethics. Descriptive ethics, as you know, uh, involves an, an attempt to uh, describe ethical behavior. Just describe it. An example of this is a guy, some of you will remember, named B.F. Skinner. 
he developed a model, an ethical model, ethical theory, set of ethical theories, really, called behaviorism. To him, our actions are predetermined inclinations, and we're just reacting to stimuli. I find it fascinating to study some of these people and their theories. There's no ought to be or should in his world. There's no God in his world either, really. Ayn Rand is another ethical theorist that comes to mind. It's not pronounced Ayn, it's Ayn, A-Y-N. She's from Russia. Many of you know her. She wrote Atlas Shrugged and other works. But she focused on ought instead of is. We would call her theories prescriptive. Among other things, her ethical egoism model teaches that we should look out for ourselves. She even says altruism is bad. This self-interest, she says, is what runs capitalism. She says altruism is, is bad, though, this, this being giving, gracious. It's even evil because of what it does. It makes people lazy, she says. Her brand of ethics sometimes appeals to us on the surface, but she focuses on advantaging oneself over others at almost all costs. This is the very definition of evil, isn't it? Or unrighteousness or injustice, as described in Scripture, advantaging oneself to the peril of or the detriment of others. Her theories are godless, and she certainly doesn't regard God's justice. Well, so just in general, the descriptive ethicist says, here's what happens ethically, and the prescriptive ethicist says, here's what ought to or should happen. God's justice, God's, God's role as judge, is based on prescriptive ethics. The, the law and the prescribed or the required underlying principle is that he is perfectly just or righteous and he will render to all people what they deserve period his law is the law we must function other under there, there, there's no other truth there, there's no is without his ought Relativism, postmodernism, secularism, and, 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 and all other disregard for absolute truth require invo or, or invoke God's retributive justice, as does every sin that has ever been committed. I know that makes you cringe to hear, but it's biblically true. We see God as exercising his judgment throughout all of Scripture. We see God as judge in his for example, in his judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18, it says, verse 25, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked, far be that from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. Psalm 75, 7, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one thing and lifting up another, Psalm 82, 8. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Hebrews 12, 23. Indeed, so terrifying was that was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion in the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator 
of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We see many, many examples of God's justice or judgment in Scripture. God judged Adam and Eve, didn't he? Immediately after expelling them from the garden and pronouncing curses on their earthly life, God judged the world in Noah's day. We see all of this in Genesis, including Sodom and Gomorrah, we just mentioned. Genesis 18 and 19. He judged the Egyptians with ten plagues. He judged those who worshipped the golden calf. He judged Israel for their unfaithfulness after they entered Canaan. He judged many others throughout the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we see Ananias and Sapphira. He judged those who rejected Christ. He judged Herod for his pride and others. He judged Christians at Corinth for their, for their irreverence. And we could go on and on. God's judgment really overshadows or permeates everything in Scripture. The law, the prophets, wisdom writings, the words of Christ, and the apostles. The New Testament is not lighter on God's judgment than the Old Testament. It actually intensifies God's role as judge. The New Testament even looks forward to the day of judgment, the day of wrath. It makes clear that Jesus is the divinely appointed judge. Look at Acts 17, verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, that is, Jesus Christ. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And First Peter 4, verse 4, with respect to this, Verses 4 and 5, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. God's, God's justice or judgment is retributive. Retribution is the, the rendering to persons what they have deserved. A.W. Pink says, this is the essence of the judge's task, to reward good with good and evil with evil, is natural to God. We talk often about this passage in Exodus 34. We're going to talk about it next week when we look at the the patience of God, where he says in chapter 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, here it is, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And then he shifts gears. He says, but who will by no means clear the guilty. This, this God who is slow to anger, who's patient and faithful and has steadfast love, unchanging, planted, rooted, grounded love, will no me- by no means clear the guilty. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. His response to all this is to bow his head and worship. 
God's character, these characteristics cause us to repent, to bow in worship. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. This passage in verse 4, and I know you're probably driving or doing some other activity, but in, in this passage in, in, in uh, Exodus 34, verse 7, reveals the justice of God. The word translated to clear, this is really interesting to me, but by who, but who will by no means clear the guilty, that word is to, to leave or to be empty or to leave unpunished. The word forgiving is to lift or carry up or carry away. Isn't that beautiful? He lifts or carries up or carries away our sin. But this says, will by no means clear the guilty. The, this visiting the iniquity on other generations has the idea of the guilt or punishment of iniquity. It's interesting. Exodus 20 verse 5 adds, of those who hate me to this idea, to the thought in, in verse 7 here in Exodus 34. This, this passage in Exodus 34 makes clear that justification by faith does not compromise God's justice. And we'll see this in Romans 3 in a few minutes that is a little more, more clear. We, we see the gospel in, in these verses, in all of Scripture. There's a distinction in Scripture between those who accept and reject God's plan. This hate and love contrast, uh, preferring and not preferring, we see often in Scripture. So those who reject me is, is, is the idea in Exodus 20, verse 5. Those who reject him are not pardoned. Isn't that interesting? Are not cleared of their guilt, but who will by no means clear the guilty. We're going to talk today just in just a couple of minutes about our pardon in Christ, about the role that Christ plays in our pardon. Matthew 23, 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Scripture teaches us that God will judge all people according to their works. Scripture, the Bible, is prescriptive. It tells us what we should do. Matthew 16, 27, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then, here it is, he will repay each person according to what he has done. That is retributive justice. Revelation 20, verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they have done. There's just no room in Scripture for antinomianism. Remember Paul's admonition to the Judaizers, the, the moralists in Rome, in Romans 2? They thought they could revert to the law and earn God's favor. Well, Paul, 
Paul just spells out retributive justice to them. Therefore, in chapter two of Romans, verse two, therefore, I'm, I'm sorry, verse one, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because the judge, you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. And then I'll go on down to verse six. He will render to each one according to his works. This is not just hyperbolic fear-mongering for the moralists, the Judaizers by Paul. This is biblical truth. God's wrath will be poured out on the unrighteous. We'll talk about our great hope in Jesus Christ today, but this reality should sink in first. There is no looking away from sin by God. His righteousness requires, necessitates his wrath, his retributive justice as he deals with sin. Christians even appear to be included in a statement about God's judgment in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You see, retribution, although we don't like to think of it this way sometimes, is a natural expression of the divine character. Retribution is the inescapable moral law of creation. It's one of the basic facts of life. There is no cosmic unfairness. We're born with this sense of justice. Our, ours is imperfect. It's scarred by sin, but we understand justice at a basic level. We're even troubled with the psalmist when we see the ungodly people prospering and at, at peace. Psalm 73, verse 3, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. I, I like verse 9. Their tongue struts through the earth. Wow, what a picture. Verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. It, it just hurts to see evil people prosper. It makes us question the justice of God. But we get down to verse 16 of Psalm 73, and he says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. God's justice is comforting to those who are in Christ. God's justice is demonstrated in Scripture. What a beautiful truth. We don't always understand it. We don't always get to see it all, but we can rest in the fact that God's justice will prevail. All the way down in verse 27, the psalmist says, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. Note how the psalmist finds comfort and is brought to worship by the justice of God. We can rest in God's essence, and that essence includes justice. 
These are just beautiful promises. As we get to know his attributes from scripture, we get comforted by these things. Even the mysteries of God are comforting. God would not be righteous if he didn't judge. Moral indifference cannot be a characteristic of a perfect God. God is a perfect moral being. He will judge the world. The judgment of God or God as judge is not a means to frighten humans into some sort of forced compliance on the surface. But God as judge is a revelation of the moral character of God. This characteristic gives moral significance to human life. Jesus as judge, Jesus Christ as judge, is clear in Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And it goes on. Down in verse uh, 41 of Matthew 25. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So the answer to the question, what would Jesus do? The answer here is judge the world righteously. Jesus as our mediator, we see this is interesting. So he's our judge. We already talked about all the functions of government. We know that he's truly, fully God. In, in 1 Timothy 2, verse 3, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and the man and, and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Mediator is one who intervenes between two. You know that. You might have even been involved in a mediation at some point. You might have said, I'll mediate this. It's an intervention between two people or more. So our judge, Jesus Christ, is also our mediator. This is only possible when God is king, lawgiver, and judge. And when God the Son is truly and fully God. This is amazing grace. These two passages that we just read make that clear. The, the clearest account, perhaps, of Jesus' prerogative of ju as judge is in John 5. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who has sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. Wow. Jud this judgment is a separating, is the idea. Our judge is our mediator, is the lawgiver and the law enforcer, and became sin on our behalf, became sin and death on our behalf. He is our atonement, reconciling us to God. Amen. Remember when we talked about earlier about the three functions of government, the three checks and balances, and the fact that God doesn't need that, Is, isn't it beautiful to see it here that our judge is our mediator? 
the one who intervenes on our behalf. He sentences us to death, but is also our atonement. It's almost more than I can grasp emotionally and intellectually, frankly. We've got human accountability explained in a number of scriptures, Luke 12, verses 47 and following, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 and following. And, and those, those tend to leave us feeling helpless. All of this sin and judgment that we know about ourselves leave me asking the question, what are we to do? You know what the answer is? It sounds like a cheesy thing to say or like a Sunday school lesson. Run to the cross of Jesus Christ. John 5, 24, listen to, listen to the juxtaposition of these two verses. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That word judgment is crisis. It's a, a separation, a selection or sentence. Does not come in, does not get sentenced. But look at 2 Corinthians 5.10. I think we just read this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. That, that has the idea of this, this, this word judgment there, for we must all appear before the judgment seat. It's bima, an assembly, a step, a judgment seat. And, and this, this, this word, whether good or evil, has the idea of bad or ethically bad, blows, blown away by every, every wind, whether good or evil. And good is translated pretty well. It's just good, morally good or morally evil, ethically bad. So th these two passages seem to conflict. That's because the gift of justification in Christ Jesus shields believers from being condemned and banished from God as sinners. God's justice and mercy are displayed together in the cross. So the following, uh, I, I want to just take a few minutes, and, I, and I, I know you've heard me reference this section before. Paul Washer talks about this section of Scripture almost every time he preaches. It's this great courtroom scene. Paul uses judicial language, language of the law, legal language, and sometimes accounting language too, in, in, in very precise legal terms. And, 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 and the, the prosecutor here is God himself, announces the, the charges that we are, are guilty of in, in, in sacred scripture through the Apostle Paul under plenary inspiration. Here's what he says in, in Romans 3.10, as it is written, and I, I, just, I just want you to think about the roles that God plays in the person of Jesus Christ even as, as both our judge and our mediator. Think, think about this. As it is written, these are the charges being brought. Imagine being in a courtroom and hearing this. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. There we have three charges. I'm not going to talk about these in any great detail, but 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 this is pretty clear. None is righteous, no, not one. So in case you think you get a pass, Paul is saying, in case you're one of the Pharisees or the Judaizers or a moralist who's just so pure, 
There's none that is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one understands. No one seeks for God. There is no such thing as a seeker for God. And I know people want to argue with that. Well, you're, you're arguing with the Apostle Paul. You're arguing with the Lord himself who inspired this scripture. No one in their flesh seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This sounds harsh to me. This sounds very harsh to me, and I'm not one of those, I'm not in the snowflake generation. Snowflake generation has some people that aren't anywhere near snowflakes. They get branded poorly, but but just this is harsh language. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. So the prosecutor, the accuser, is is, is really laying this out. We are guilty on all these counts. There are 14 total counts here. Can you imagine being in a courtroom and hearing the charges read? The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God or respect of God before their eyes. The judge himself, watch this, in verse 19, that's, that's, that, that's 10 through 18 of chapter 3 of Romans, but watch this, the judge himself, God himself, announces the guilty verdict. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin, the judge takes his gavel and pounds the gavel and says, guilty. Isn't that something? Now, I want you just to just hold that thought. That's Romans 3. I, w- I want to skip over now to Romans 8, and I want you to tell me how this is possible. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now, you probably have memorized this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And he goes on. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And he continues. You see, he's explained this. It is because of Jesus Christ and his finished work that there is therefore now no condemnation. Isn't that beautiful? Just think about that for a moment. There is therefore now no condemnation. This, that word, therefore, points us to the gospel that Paul has explained in the first seven chapters of Romans. It points us to justification by faith. It points us to the righteousness or justice of God and his tender mercies and grace toward us. In a sense, this section in chapter 8 is the final verdict of the court that Paul describes in Romans 3. Let's go back to verse 21 of chapter 3. We didn't read this section, but this tells us how we got there. How did we get from condemnation in chapter in 
verses 19 and 20 of chapter 3 of Romans to there being no condemnation in, in Romans 8, 1. Listen to this. But now, verse 21 of Romans 3, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That word righteousness, remember, is very similar in root to justice. And we'll talk about the Greek words in just a second. And the prophets bear witness to it. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Boy, do we understand that, Paul, from these, these 14 counts, these 14 charges that have been brought. And are justified, that is, reconciled to God, declared morally right, declared righteous, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness. There it is again at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Just look at God's justice and mercy converging in this section. Verse 22 of chapter 3 says that Jesus is the righteousness of God. That word righteous in the Greek, I, I'm not even going to pronounce the English translation of the Greek word, is a noun being right or just as it ought to be. Remember that word from our discussion of ethics. Sometimes that word is translated justice. Hebrews 11.33, it's translated justice. It's exactly the same word. In verses 20, 24, and 26 here in, in Romans 3, is the, the different word, it's a verb, it's, it's translated justified or justifier. It is to render righteous. It has the idea of continuing action. So just think about this for a second. Think about this courtroom scene that Paul is describing. We're adjudicated guilty. But then Jesus Christ, the judge, it's as if he got up out of the judge's chair and took our place after we're sentenced and says, and, and atones for our sins on the cross. That is precisely what happened. Paul uses that word propitiation. It's a forceful expiation, a forceful covering of our sin. But it's important to also say and appeases the wrath of God. It, I mean, it, it, is, it is just beautiful that God's righteousness is maintained, his justice is maintained through his grace and mercy in the person of Jesus Christ. Wow. That, that is just beautiful. I want to close with this. You probably, you, you know this story. Everybody knows this story. I think, I think atheists know this story in John 8. This, this is just a beautiful example of God's justice, mercy, and grace. There's a convergence of Jewish and Roman law here that we, we're not going to spend any time talking about, but, but I, I, want you to, I want you to hear this. John 8, starting in verse 1, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. This isn't the rumor mill. She's been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, 
this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman, so what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and no, we don't know what he was writing. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Think about that for a moment. God's justice was not compromised in this story. We, we overlook one element of this story that I find fascinating. There's a lot here that is, is powerful. That is, there, there was one in that crowd who had the right to cast a stone and condemn the woman. Instead of exercising justice, his rights under his justice, he exercised mercy. Jesus Christ is the righteousness of God. Jesus on the cross is the most vivid example of God's justice. God, God punishes sin on the cross. He will never compromise his righteousness, his justice. Jesus had to be the lamb without blemish. God required perfection so his law, his justice would be maintained. Justice and mercy are displayed beautifully together on the cross. Jesus is the righteousness of God. He is God's moral right standing, the judge. He is God's justice in a sense. That is just absolutely beautiful. Well, I, I hope the beauty of this truth is as jolting to you as it is to me, as beautiful, as beautiful to you as it is to me. I've studied this material again and again, and it just leaps off the page and brings me to tears every time I think about the fact that he is our mediator. Our judge is our mediator, the very righteousness of God. If you really want to grasp the essence of God, the character of God, the attributes of God, dwell on this. I'd be happy to correspond with you if you're struggling with these truths or if you'd like more information. Don't hesitate to contact me at john at johnwarrenmedia.com or just go to the website and use the contact form johnwarrenmedia.com. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. I am grateful for you and your encouragement, and I look forward to being with you again next time. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren.